This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Mike Vendetti. It runs 56 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft. I'm Mike Vendetti. Chapter 1. The Shadow on the Chimney. There was thunder in the air on the night I went to the deserted mansion atop Tempest Mountain to find the lurking fear. I was not alone, for foolhardiness was not then mixed with that love of the grotesque and the terrible which has made my career a series of quests for strange horrors in literature and in life. With me were two faithful and muscular men for whom I had sent when the time came. Men long associated with me in my ghastly explorations because of their peculiar fitness. We had started quietly from the village because of the reporters who still lingered about after the eldritch panic of a month before. The nightmare creeping death. Later I thought they might aid me, but I did not want them then. Would to God I had let them share the search that I might not have had to bear this secret alone so long, to bear it alone for fear the world would call me mad, or go mad itself at the demon implications of the thing. Now that I am telling it anyway, lest the brooding make me a maniac, I wish I had never concealed it, for I, and I only, know what manner of fear lurked on that spectral and desolate mountain. In a small motor car, we covered the miles of primeval forest and hill until the wooded ascent checked it. The country bore an aspect more than usually sinister as we viewed it by night, and without the accustomed crowds of investigators, so that we were often tempted to use the excellent headlights despite the attention it might attract. It was not a wholesome landscape after dark and I believe I would have noticed its morbidity even had I been ignorant of the terror that stalked there. Of wild creatures there were none. They are wise when death leers close. The ancient lightning-scarred trees seemed unnaturally large and twisted, and the other vegetation unnaturally thick and feverish, while curious mounds and hammocks in the weedy fulgurite Pitted earth reminded me of snakes and dead men's skulls swelled to gigantic proportions. Fear had lurked on Tempest Mountain for many a century. This I learned at once from newspaper accounts of the catastrophe which first brought the region to the world's notice. The place is a remote, lonely elevation in that part of the Catskills where Dutch civilization once feebly and transcendently penetrated leaving behind, as it receded, only a few mined mansions and a degenerate squatter population inhabiting pitiful hamlets on isolated slopes. Normal beings seldom visited the locality till the state police were formed, and even now only infrequent troopers patrol it. A fear, however, is an old tradition throughout the neighboring villages 
since it is a prime topic in the center discourse of the poor mongrels who sometimes leave their valleys to trade hand-woven baskets for such primitive necessities as they cannot shoot, raise, or make. The lurking fear dwelt in the shunned and deserted Martinese mansion, which crowned the high but gradual eminence whose liability to frequent thunderstorms gave it the name of Tempest Mountain. For over a hundred years the antique Grove Circle Stone House had been the subject of stories incredibly wild and monstrously hideous, stories of a silent, colossal, creeping death which stalked abroad in summer. With whimpering insistence, the squatters told tales of a demon which seized lone wayfarers after dark, either carrying them off or leaving them in a frightful state of gnawed dismemberment while sometimes they whispered of blood trails toward the distant mansion. Some said the thunder called the lurking fear out of its habitation, while others said the thunder was its voice. No one outside the backwoods had believed these varying and conflicting stories, with their incoherent, extravagant descriptions of the hell-glimpsed fiend. Yet not a farmer or villager doubted that the Martinese mansion was ghoulishly haunted. Local history forbade such doubt, although no ghostly evidence was ever found by such investigators as had visited the building after some especially vivid tale of the squatters. Grandmothers told strange myths of the Martinese specter, myth, concerning the Martinese family itself, its queer heredity, dissimilarity of eyes, its long unnatural annals and the murder which had cursed it. The tenor which had brought me to this scene was a sudden and portentous confirmation of the mountaineer's wildest legends. One summer night, after a thunderstorm of unprecedented violence, the countryside was aroused by a squatter stampede which no mere delusion could create. The pitiful throngs of natives shrieked and whined, of the unnameable horror which had descended upon them. And they were not doubted. They had not seen it, but had heard such cries from one of their hamlets that they knew a creeping death had come. In the morning, citizens and state troopers followed the shuddering mountaineers to the place where they said the death had come. Death was indeed there. The ground under one of the squatters' villages had caved in after a lightning stroke, destroying several of the malodorous shanties. But upon this property damage was superimposed, an organic devastation which paled it to significance. Of a possible seventy-five natives who had inhabited this spot, not one living specimen was visible. The disordered earth was covered with blood and human debris, bespeaking too vividly the ravages of demon teeth and talons. Yet no visible trail led away from the carnage. That some hideous animal must be the cause, everyone quickly agreed. Nor did any tongue now revive the charge. That such cryptic deaths formed merely the sword murders common in decadent communities. 
That charge was revived only when about twenty-five of the estimated population we found missing from the dead, and even then it was hard to explain the murder of fifty by half that number. But the fact remained that on a summer night a bolt had come out of the heavens and left a dead village whose corpses were horribly mangled, chewed, and clawed. The excited countryside immediately connected the horror with the haunted Martinese mansion, though the localities were over three miles apart. The troopers were more skeptical, including the mansion only casually in their investigations, and dropping it altogether when they found it thoroughly deserted. Country and village people, however, I canvassed the place with infinite care, overturning everything in the house, sounding ponds and brooks, beating down bushes, and ransacking the nearby forests. All was in vain. The death that had come had left no trace save destruction itself. By the second day of the search, the affair was fully treated by the newspapers, whose reporters overran Tempest Mountain. They described it in much detail, and with many interviews to elucidate the horror's history as told by local grandmas. I followed the accounts languidly at first, for I am a connoisseur in horrors. But after a week I detected an atmosphere which stirred me oddly, so that on August 5, 1921, I registered among the reporters who crowded the hotel at Lefferts Corners, nearest village to Tempest Mountain, and acknowledged headquarters of the searchers. Three weeks more, and the dispersal of the reporters left me free to begin a terrible exploration, based on the minute inquiries and surveying with which I had meanwhile busied myself. So on this summer night, while distant thunder rumbled, I left a silent motor-car and tramped with two armed companions to the last mound-covered reaches of Tempest Mountain. Casting the beams of an electric torch on the spectral gray walls that began to appear through giant oaks ahead. In this morbid night solitude and feeble shifting illumination, the vast box-like pile displayed obscure hints of terror, which day could not uncover. Yet I did not hesitate, since I had come with fierce resolution to test an idea. I believed that the thunder called the death demon out of some fearsome secret place, and be that demon solid entity or vaporous pestilence. I meant to see it. I had thoroughly searched the ruin before, hence knew my plan well, choosing as the seat of my vigil the old room of Jan Martinis, whose murder looms so great in the rural legends. I felt subtly that the apartment of this ancient victim was best for my purposes. The chamber, measuring about twenty feet square, contained, like the other rooms, some rubbish which had once been furniture. It lay on the second story, on the southeast corner of the house, and had an immense east window and narrow south window, both devoid of panes or shutters. Opposite the large window was an enormous Dutch fireplace, with scriptural tiles representing the prodigal son, and opposite the narrow window was a spacious bed built into the wall. As the tree-muffled thunder grew louder, I arranged my plan's details, 
First I fastened side by side to the ledge of the large window three rope ladders, which I had brought with me. I knew they reached a suitable spot in the grass outside, for I had tested them. Then the three of us dragged from another room a wide four-poster bedstead, crowding it laterally against the window. Having strewn it with fur brows, all now rested on it, with drawn automatics, to relaxing while the third watched. From whatever direction the demon might come, our potential escape was provided. If it came from within the house, we had the window ladders. If from outside, the door and the stairs. We did not think, judging from precedent, that it would pursue us far, even at worst. I watched from midnight to one o'clock, when in spite of the sinister house, the unprotected window, and the approaching thunder and lightning, I felt singularly drowsy. I was between my two companions, George Bennett, being toward the window, and William Toby toward the fireplace. Bennett was asleep, having apparently felt the same anomalous drowsiness which affected me, so I designated Toby for the next watch, although he was nodding. It is curious how intently I had been watching the fireplace. The increasing thunder must have affected my dreams, for in the brief time I slept there came to me apocalyptic visions. Once I partly awakened, probably because the sleeper toward the window had restlessly flung an arm across my chest. I was not sufficiently awake to see whether Toby was attending to his duties as sentinel, but I felt a distinct anxiety on the score. Never before had the presence of evil so poignantly oppressed me. Later I must have dropped to sleep again for it was out of a phantasmal chaos that my mind leaped when the night grew hideous with shrieks beyond anything in my former experience or imagination. In that shrieking, the inmost soul of human fear and agony clawed hopelessly and insanely at the ebony gates of oblivion. I awoke to red madness and the mockery of diabolism as farther and farther down the inconceivable vistas that phobic and crystalline anguish retreated and reverberated. There was no light, but I knew from the empty space at my right that Toby was gone. God alone knew whither. Across my chest still lay the heavy arm of the sleeper at my left. Then came the devastating stroke of lightning which shook the whole mountain, lit the darkest crypt of the hoary grove and splintered the patriarch of the twisted trees. In the demon flash of a monstrous fireball, the sleeper startled up suddenly while the glare from beyond the window threw his shadow vividly upon the chimney above the fireplace, from which my eyes had never strayed. That I am still alive and sane is a marvel I cannot fathom. I cannot fathom it for the shadow on that chimney was not that of George Bennett, or of any other human creature, but a blasphemous abnormality from hell's nethermost craters, a nameless, shapeless abomination which no mind could fully grasp, and no pen even partly describe. In another second I was alone in the accursed mansion, shivering and gibbering. George Bennett and William Toby had left no trace, 
not even of a struggle. They were never heard of again. Chapter 2 A Passer in the Storm For days after that hideous experience in the forest swamp mansion, I lay nervously exhausted in my hotel room at Leffer's Corners. I do not remember exactly how I managed to reach the motor-car, start it, and slip unobserved back to the village. For I retained no distinct impression save of wild-armed titan trees, demonic mutterings of thunder, and carrion shadows athwart the low mounds that dotted and streaked the region. As I shivered and brooded on the casting of that brain-blasting shadow, I knew that I had at last pried out one of Earth's supreme horrors, one of those nameless blights of outer voids whose faint demon scratchings we sometimes hear on the farthest rim of space, yet from which our own finite vision has given us a merciful immunity. The shadow I'd seen I hardly dared to analyze or identify. Something had laden between me and the window that night, but I shuddered whenever I could not cast off the instinct to classify it. If it had only snarled or bayed or laughed titteringly, even that would have relieved the abysmal hideousness. But it was so silent. It had rested a heavy arm or foreleg on my chest. Obviously it was organic, or had once been organic. Yann Martinis, whose room I had invaded, was buried in the graveyard near the mansion. I must find Bennett and Toby if they lived. Why had it picked them and left me for the last? Drowsiness is so stifling and dreams are so horrible. In a short time I realized that I must tell my story to someone or break down completely. I had already decided not to abandon the quest for the lurking fear, for in my rash ignorance it seemed to me that uncertainty was worse than enlightenment, however terrible the latter might prove to be. Accordingly, I resolved in my mind the best course to pursue, whom to select for my confidences, and how to track down the thing which had obliterated two men and cast a nighttime shadow. My chief acquaintances at Leffert's Corners had been the affable reporters, of whom several had still remained to collect final echoes of the tragedy. It was from these that I determined to choose a colleague, and the more I reflected, the more my preference inclined toward one Arthur Monroe, a dark, lean man of about thirty-five whose education, taste, intelligence, and temperament all seemed to mark him as one not bound to conventional ideas and experiences. On an afternoon in early September, Arthur Monroe listened to my story. I saw from the beginning that he was both interested and sympathetic, and when I had finished he analyzed and discussed the thing with the greatest shrewdness and judgment. His advice, moreover, was eminently practical, for he recommended a postponement of operations at the Martinese mansion until we might become fortified with more detailed historical and geographical data. On his initiative, we combed the countryside for information regarding the terrible Martinese family, 
and discovered a man who possessed a marvelously illuminating ancestral diary. We also talked at length with such of the mountain mongrels as had not fled from the terror and confusion to remoter slopes, and slope again scanned for dens and caves, but all without result. And yet, as I have said, vague new fears hovered menacingly over us, as if giant back-winged griffins looked on transcosmic gulfs. As the afternoon advanced, it became increasingly difficult to see. We heard the rumble of a thunderstorm gathering over Tempest Mountain. This sound in such locality naturally stirred us, though less than it would have done at night. As it was, we hoped desperately that the storm would last until well after dark, and with that hope turned from our aimless hillside searching toward the nearest inhabited hamlet to gather a body of squatters as helpers in the investigation. Timid as they were, a few of the younger men were sufficiently inspired by our protective leadership to promise such help. We had hardly more than turned, however, when there descended such a blinding sheet of torrential rain that shelter became imperative. The extreme, almost nocturnal darkness of the sky caused us to stumble badly, but guided by the frequent flashes of lightning and by our minute knowledge of the hamlet, we soon reached the least porous cabin of the lot, an heterogeneous combination of logs and boards whose still existing door and single tiny window both faced Maple Hill. Barring the door after us against the fury of the wind and rain, we put in place the crude window-shutter, which our frequent searches had taught us where to find. It was dismal sitting there on rickety boxes in the pitchy darkness, but we smoked pipes and occasionally flashed our pocket lamps about. Now and then we could see lightning through cracks in the wall. The afternoon was so incredibly dark that each flash was extremely vivid. The stormy vigil reminded me shudderingly of my ghastly night on Tempest Mountain. My mind turned to that odd question which had kept recurring ever since that nightmare thing had happened, and again I wondered why the demon, approaching the three watchers either from the window or the interior, had begun with the men on each side and left the middle man till the last, when the titan fireball had scared it away. Why had it not taken its victims in natural order, with myself second, from whichever direction it had approached? With what manner of far-reaching tentacles did it pray? Or did it know that I was the leader and saved me for a fate worse than that of my companions? In the midst of these reflections, as if dramatically arranged to intensify them, there fell nearby a terrific bolt of lightning followed by the sound of sliding earth. At the same time, the wolfish wind rose to demoniac crescendos of uliation. We were sure that the one tree on Maple Hill had been struck again, and Monroe rose from his box and went to the tiny window to ascertain the damage. When he took down the shutter, the wind and rain howled deafeningly in so that I could not hear what he said, but I waited while he leaned out and tried to fathom nature's pandemonium. Gradually a calming of the wind and dispersal of the unusual darkness told of the storm's passing, 
I had hoped it would last into the night to help our quest. But a furtive sunbeam from a knothole behind me removed the likelihood of such a thing. Suggesting to Monroe that we had better get some light even if more showers came, I unbarred and opened the crude door. Ground outside was a singular mass of mud and pools with fresh heaps of earth from the slight landslide. But I saw nothing to justify the interest which kept my companion silently leaning out the window. Crossing to where he leaned, I touched his shoulder. But he did not move. Then as I playfully shook him and turned him around, I felt the strangling tendrils of a cancerous horror whose roots reached into illimitable pasts and fathomless abysms. The night that broods beyond time. For Arthur Monroe was dead, and on what remained of his chewed and gouged head, there was no longer a face. Chapter 3 What the Red Glare Meant on the tempest-racked night of November 8, 1921, with a lantern which cast charnel shadows, I stood digging alone and idiotically in the grave of Yann Martinis. I had begun to dig in the afternoon because a thunderstorm was brewing, and now that it was dark and the storm had burst above the maniacally thick foliage, I was glad. I believe that my mind was partly unhinged by events since August 5th, the demon shadow in the mansion, the general strain and disappointment, and the thing that occurred at the hamlet in an October storm. After that thing I had dug a grave for one whose death I could not understand. I knew that others could not understand either, so I let them think Arthur Monroe had wandered away. They searched but found nothing. The squatters might have understood, but I dared not frighten them more. I myself seemed strangely callous. That shock at the mansion had done something to my brain, and I could think only of the quest for a horror now grown to cataclysmic stature in my imagination, a quest which the fate of Arthur Moore made me vow to keep silent and solitary. The scene of my excavations would alone have been enough to unnerve an ordinary man. Baleful, primal trees of unholy size, age, and grotesqueness leered above me, like the pillars of some hellish drutic temple, muffling the thunder, hushing the clawing wind, and admitting but little rain. Beyond the scarred trunks in the background, illuminated by faint flashes of filtered lighting, rose the damp, ivied stones of the deserted mansion. But somewhere nearer was the abandoned Dutch garden whose walks and beds were polluted by a white fungus, fetid, overnourished vegetation that never saw full daylight. And nearest of all was the graveyard, where deformed trees tossed insane branches as their roots displaced unhallowed slabs and sucked venom from what lay below. Now and then, beneath the brown pall of leaves that rotted and festered in the antediluvian forest darkness, I could trace the sinister outlines of some of those low mounds which characterized the lightning-pierced region. 
History had led me to this archaic grave. History, indeed, was all I had after everything else ended in mocking Satanism. I now believed that the lurking fear was no material being, but a wolf-fanged ghost that rode the midnight lightning. And I believed, because of the masses of local tradition, I had unearthed in search with Arthur Monroe, that the ghost was that of Jan Martinis, who died in 1762. This is why I was digging idiotically in his grave. The Martinis mansion was built in 1670 by Garriott Martinis, a wealthy New Amsterdam merchant who disliked the changing order under British rule and had constructed this magnificent domicile on a remote woodland summit whose untrodden solitude and unusual scenery pleased him. The only substantial disappointment encountered in this site was that which concerned the prevalence of violent thunderstorms in summer. When selecting the hill and building his mansion, Mynheer Martinis had laid these frequent natural outbursts to some peculiarity of the year but in time he perceived that the locality was especially liable to such phenomena. At length, having found these storms injurious to his head, he fitted up a cellar into which he could retreat from their wildest pandemonium. Of Garrett Martinis's descendants less is known than of himself, since they were all reared in hatred of the English civilization, and trained to shun such of the colonists as accepted it. Their life was exceedingly secluded, and people declared that their isolation had made them heavy of speech and comprehension. In appearance, all were marked by a peculiar inherited dissimilarity of eyes, one generally being blue and the other brown. Their social contacts grew fewer and fewer, till at last they took to intermarrying with the numerous menial class about the estate. Many of the crowded family degenerated, moved across the valley, and merged with the mongrel population, which was later to produce the pitiful squatters. The rest had stuck sullenly to their ancestral mansion, becoming more and more clannish and taciturn, yet developing a nervous responsiveness to the frequent thunderstorms. Most of this information reached the outside world through young Yan Martinis, who, from some kind of restlessness, joined the colonial army when news of the Albany Convention reached Tempest Mountain. He was the first of Garrett's descendants to see much of the world, and when he returned in 1760 after six years of campaigning, he was hated as an outsider by his father, uncles, and brothers in spite of his dissimilar Martinis eyes. No longer could he share the peculiarities and prejudices of the Martinises, while the very mountain thunderstorms failed to intoxicate him as they had before. Instead, his surroundings depressed him, and he frequently wrote to a friend in Albany of plans to leave the paternal roof. In the spring of 1763, Jonathan Gifford, the Albany friend of Jan Martinis, became worried by his correspondent's silence, especially in view of the conditions and quarrels at the Martinis' mansion. Determined to visit Yen in person, he went into the mountains on horseback. 
His diary states that he reached Tempest Mountain on September 20th, finding the mansion in great decrepitude. The sullen, odd-eyed Martinezes, whose unclean animal aspect shocked him, told him in broken gutturals that Yan was dead. He had, they insisted, been struck by lightning in the autumn before, and now lay buried behind the neglected sunken gardens. They showed the visitor the grave, barren and devoid of markers. Something in the Martinez's manner gave Gifford a feeling of repulsion and suspicion. And a week later he returned with spade and mattock to explore the sepulchral spot. He found what he expected, a skull, crushed cruelly as if by savage blows. So returning to Albany he openly charged the Martinez's with the murder of their kinsmen. Legal evidence was lacking, but the story spread rapidly around the countryside, and from that time the Martinezes were ostracized by the world. No one would deal with them, and their distant banner was shunned as an accursed place. Somehow they managed to live on independently by the product of their estate, for occasional lights glimpsed from faraway hills attested their continued presence. These lights were seen as late as 1810, but toward the last they became infrequent. Meanwhile, there grew up about the mansion and the mountain a body of diabolic legendary. The place was avoided with double assiduousness and invested with every whispered myth tradition could supply. It remained unvisited till 1816, when the continued absence of light was noticed by the squatters. At the time, a party made investigations, finding the house deserted and partly in ruins. There were no skeletons about, so that departure rather than death was inferred. The clan seemed to have left several years before, and improvised penthouses showed how numerous it had grown prior to its migration. Its cultural level had fallen very low, as proved by decaying furniture and scattered silverware which must have been long abandoned when the owners left. But though the dreaded Martinezes were gone, the fear of the haunted house continued, and grew very acute when new and strange stories arose among the mountain descendants. There it stood, deserted, feared, and linked with the vengeful ghost of Jan Martinez. There it still stood on the night I dug at Jan Martinez's grave, I have described my protracted digging as idiotic, and such it indeed was in object and method. The coffin of Yen Martinez had soon been unearthed. It now held only dust and nitre. But in my fury to exhume the ghost, I delved irrationally and clumsily down beneath where he had lain. God knows what I expected to find. I only felt that I was digging in the grave of a man whose ghost stalked by night. It is impossible to say what monstrous depth I had attained when my spade and soon my feet broke through the ground beneath. The event under the circumstances was tremendous, for in the existence of a subterranean space here, my mad theories had terrible confirmation. My slight fall had extinguished the lantern, but I produced an electric pocket lamp and viewed the small horizontal tunnel which led away indefinitely in both directions. 
It was amply large enough for a man to wiggle through, and though no sane person would have tried at that time, I forgot danger, reason, and cleanliness in my single-minded fever to unearth the lurking fear. Choosing that direction toward the house, I scrambled recklessly into the narrow burrow, squirming ahead blindly and rapidly, and flashing but seldom the lamp I kept before me. What language can describe the spectacle of a man lost in an infinitely abysmal earth, pawing, twisting, wheezing, scrambling madly through sunken convolutions of immemorial blackness without an idea of time, safety, direction, or definite object? There is something hideous in it, but that is what I did. I did it for so long that life faded into far memory, and I became one with the moles and grubs of nighted depths. Indeed, it was only by accident that after interminable writhings I jarred my forgotten electric lamp alight, so that it shone eerily along the burrow of caked loam that stretched and curved ahead. I had been scrambling in this way for some time, so that my battery had burned very low when the passage suddenly inclined sharply upward, altering my mode of progress. And as I raised my glance, it was without preparation that I saw glistening in the distance two demonic reflections of my exploring lamp. Two reflections, glowing with a baneful and unmistakable effulgence, and provoking maddeningly nebulous memories. I stopped automatically, though lacking the brain to react. The eyes approached, yet of the thing that bore them I could distinguish only a claw. But what a claw! Then, far overhead, I heard a faint crashing, which I recognized. It was the wild thunder of the mountain, raised to hysteric fury. I must have been crawling upward for some time, so that the surface was now quite near. And as the muffled thunder clattered, those eyes still stared with vacuous viciousness. Thank God I did not then know what it was, else I would have died. But I was saved by the very thunder that had summoned it. For after a hideous wait there burst from the unseen outside sky one of those frequent mountainward bolts whose aftermath I had noticed here and there as gashes of disturbed earth and fulgurites of various sizes. With cyclopean rage it tore through the soil above that damnable pit, blinding and deafening me, yet not wholly reducing me to a coma. In the chaos of sliding, shifting earth, I clawed and floundered helplessly till the rain on my head steadied me, and I saw that I had come to the surface in a familiar spot, a steep, unforested place on the southwest slope of the mountain. Recurrent sheet lightnings illuminated the tumbled ground, and the remains of the curious low hammock which had stretched down from the wooded higher slope. But there was nothing in the chaos to show my place of egress from the lethal catacomb. My brain was as great a chaos as the earth, and as a distant red glare burst on the landscape from the south, I hardly realized the horror I had been through. But when two days later, when the squatters told me what the red glare meant, I felt more horror than that which the mold burrow and the claw and eyes had given. More horror, 
because of the overwhelming implications. In a hamlet twenty miles away, an orgy of fear had followed the bolt which brought me above ground, and a nameless thing had dropped from an overhanging tree into a weak-roofed cabin. It had done a deed, but the squatters had fired the cabin in frenzy before it could escape. It had been doing that deed at the very moment the earth caved in on the thing with the claw and eyes. Chapter 4 There can be nothing normal in the mind of one who, knowing what I knew of the horrors of Tempest Mountain, would seek alone for the fear that lurked there. That at least two of the fear's embodiments were destroyed, formed but a slight guarantee of mental and physical safety in this acheron of multiformed diabolism. Yet I continued my quest with even greater zeal as events and revelations became more monstrous. When two days after my frightful crawl through that crypt to the eyes of the claw, I learned that a thing had malignantly hovered twenty miles away at the same instant the eyes were glaring at me. I experienced virtual convulsions of fright, but that fright was so mixed with wonder and alluring grotesqueness that it was almost a pleasant sensation. Sometimes in the throes of a nightmare, when unseen powers whirl one over the roofs of strange dead cities toward the grinning chasm of Nis, it is a relief and even a delight to shriek wildly and throw oneself voluntarily along with the hideous vortex of dream doom into whatever bottomless gulf may yawn. And so it was with the walking nightmare of Tempest Mountain. The discovery that two monsters had haunted the spot gave me ultimately a mad craving to plunge into the very earth of the accursed region, and with bare hands dig out the death that leered from every inch of the poisonous soil. As soon as possible I visited the grave of Jan Martinis, and dug vainly where I had dug before. Some extensive cave-in had obliterated all trace of the underground passage. While the rain had washed so much earth back into the excavation that I could not tell how deeply I had dug that other day. Likewise, I made a difficult trip to the distant hamlet where the death creature had been burnt and was little repaid for my trouble. In the ashes of the fateful cabin, I found several bones, but apparently none of the monsters. The squatters said the thing had had only one victim but in this I judged them inaccurate, since beside the complete skull of a human being there was another bony fragment which seemed certainly to have belonged to a human skull at some time. Though the rapid drop of the monster had been seen, no one could say just what the creature was like. Those who had glimpsed it called it simply a devil. Examining the great tree where it had lurked, I could discern no distinctive marks. I tried to find some trail into the black forest, but on this occasion could not stand the sight of those morbidly large poles, or of those vast serpent-like roots that twisted so malevolently before they sank into the earth. 
My next step was to re-examine with microscopic care the deserted hamlet where death had come most abundantly, and where Arthur Monroe had seen something he never lived to describe. Though my vain previous searches had been exceedingly minute, I now had new data to test, for my horrible grave-crawl convinced me that at least one of the phases of the monstrosity had been an underground creature. This time, on the 14th of November, my quest concerned itself mostly with the slope of Cone Mountain and Maple Hill, where they overlooked the unfortunate hamlet. I gave particular attention to the loose earth of the landslide region on the later eminence. The afternoon of my search brought nothing to light. The dusk came as I stood on Maple Hill, looking down at the hamlet and across the valley to Tempest Mountain. There had been a gorgeous sunset, and now the moon came up, nearly full, and shedding a silver flood over the plain, the distant mountainside, and the curious low mounds that rose here and there. It was a peaceful Arcadian scene, but knowing what I hid, I hated it. I hated the mocking moon, the hypocritical plain, the festering mountain, and those sinister mounds. Everything seemed to me tainted with a loathsome contagion, and inspired by a noxious alliance with distorted, hidden powers. Presently, as I gazed abstractedly at the moonlit panorama, my eye became attracted by something singular in the nature of arrangement of a certain topographical element. Without having an exact knowledge of geology, I had from the first been interested in the odd mounds and hammocks of the region. I had noticed that they were pretty widely distributed around Tempest Mountain, though less numerous on the plain than near the hilltop itself where prehistoric glaciation had doubtless found feebler opposition to its striking and fantastic caprices. Now in the light of that low moon which cast long, weird shadows, it struck me forcibly that the various points and lines of the mound system had a peculiar relation to the summit of Tempest Mountain. That summit was undeniably a center from which the lines or rows of points radiated indefinitely and irregularly, as if the unwholesome Martinese mansion had thrown visible tentacles of terror. The idea of such tentacles gave me an unexplained thrill, and I stopped to analyze my reason for believing these mounds glacial phenomena. The more I analyzed, the less I believed and against my newly opened mind there began to beat grotesque and horrible analogies based on superficial aspects and upon my experience beneath the earth. Before I knew it, I was uttering frenzied and disjointed words to myself. Oh, God, molehills, the damn place must be honeycombed. How many? That night at the mansion, they took Bennett and Toby first, on each side of us. Then I was digging frantically into the mound, which had stretched nearest me, digging desperately, shiveringly, but almost jubilantly, digging, and at last shrieking aloud with some unplaced emotion as I came upon a tunnel, or burrow, 
just like the one through which I had crawled on the other demoniac night. After that I recall running spade in hand, a hideous run across moonlit mound-marked meadows and through diseased precipitous abysses of haunted hillside forest, leaping, screaming, panting, bounding toward the terrible Martinese mansion. I recall digging unreasonably in all parts of the briar-choked cellar, digging to find the core and center of that malignant universe of mounds. And then I recall how I laughed when I stumbled on the passageway, the hole at the base of the old chimney, where the thick weeds grew and cast queer shadows in the light of the lone candle I had happened to have with me. What still remained down in that hell hive, lurking and waiting for the thunder to arouse it, I did not know. Two had been killed. Perhaps that had finished it. But still there remained that burning determination to reach the innermost secret of the fear, which I had once more come to deem definite, material, and organic. My indecisive speculation whether to explore the passage alone and immediately with my pocket light, or to try to assemble a band of squatters for the quest, was interrupted after a time by a sudden rush of wind from the outside which blew out the candle and left me in stark darkness. The moon no longer shone through the chinks and apertures above me, and with a sense of fateful alarm I heard the sinister and significant rumble of approaching thunder. A confusion of associated ideas possessed my brain, leading me to grope back toward the farthest corner of the cellar. My eyes, however, never turned away from the horrible opening at the base of the chimney, and I began to get glimpses of the crumbling bricks and unhealthy weeds as faint glows of lightning penetrated the weeds outside and illuminated the chinks in the upper wall. Every second I was consumed with a mixture of fear and curiosity. What would the storm call forth? Or was there anything left for it to call? Guided by a lightning flash, I settled myself down behind the dense clump of vegetation, through which I could see the opening without being seen. If heaven is merciful, it will some day face from my consciousness the sight that I saw and let me live my last years in peace. I cannot sleep at night now, and have to take opiates when it thunders. The thing came abruptly and unannounced, a demon, rat-like scurrying from pits remote and unimaginable, a hellish panting and stifled grunting, and then from that opening beneath the chimney a burst of multitudinous and leprous life. A loathsome night-spawned flood of organic corruption, more devastatingly hideous than the blackest conjurations of mortal madness and morbidity. Seething, stewing, surging, bubbling like serpent slime, it rolled up and out of that yawning hole, spreading like a septic contagion and streaming from the cellar at every point of egress streaming out to scatter through the accursed midnight forests and strew fear, madness, and death. God knows how many there were. There must have been thousands. To see the stream of them and that faint intermittent lightning was shocking. 
when they had thinned out enough to be glimpsed as separate organisms. I saw that they were dwarfed, deformed hairy devils or ape-monstrous and diabolic caricatures of the monkey tribe. They were so hideously silent. There was hardly a squeal when one of the last stragglers turned with the skill of long practice to make a meal in a custom fashion on a weaker companion. Others snapped up what it left and ate with slavering relish. Then, in spite of my days of fright and disgust, my morbid curiosity triumphed, and as the last of the monstrosities oozed up alone from that netherworld of unknown nightmare, I drew my automatic pistol and shot it under the cover of the thunder. Shrieking, slithering, torrential shadows of red, viscous madness chasing one another through endless, ensanguined corridors of purple, fulgurous sky, formless phantasms, and kaleidoscopic mutations of a ghoulish remembered scene. Forests of monstrous, overnourished oaks with serpent roots, twisting and sucking unnameable juices from an earth venomous with millions of cannibal devils, mound-like tentacles groping from an underground nuclei of polypus perversion, insane lightning over malignant ivied walls and demon arcades choked with fungous vegetation. Heaven be thanked for the instinct which led me unconscious to places where men dwell, to the peaceful village that slept under the calm stars of clearing skies. I had recovered enough in a week to send to Albany for a gang of men to blow up the Martinese mansion and the entire top of Tempest Mountain with dynamite, stop up all the discoverable mound burrows and destroy certain overnourished trees whose very existence seemed an insult to sanity. I could sleep a little after they had done this, but true rest will never come as long as I remember that nameless secret of the lurking fear. The thing will haunt me, for who can say the extermination is complete, and that analogous phenomena do not exist all over the world? Who can, with my knowledge, think of the earth's unknown caverns without a nightmare dread of future possibilities? I cannot see a well or a subway entrance without shuddering. Why cannot the doctors give me something to make me sleep? or truly calm my brain when it thunders. What I saw in the glow of flashlight after I shot the unspeakable, staggering object was so simple that almost a minute elapsed before I understood and went delirious. The object was nauseous, a filthy, whitish, gorilla thing with sharp yellow fangs and matted fur. It was the ultimate product of mammalian degeneration, the frightful outcome of isolated spawning, multiplication, and cannibal nutrition above and below the ground, the embodiment of all the snarling and chaos and grinning fear that lurk behind life. It had looked at me as it died, and its eyes had the same odd quality that marked those other eyes which had stared at me underground and excited cloudy recollections. One eye was blue, the other brown, 
They were the dissimilar Martinese eyes of the old legends. And I knew, in one inundating catechism of voiceless horror, what had become of that vanished family, the terrible and thunder-grazed house of Martinese. This has been The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft. I'm Mike Venditti. Production copyright 2013 by Audiobooks by Mike Vendetti. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Oh, hello, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Jim. Hello, I'm Terrence. And we're going to talk about The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft, written in November 1922, published in January through the April 1923 issues of Homebrew. That's the same... Uh, semi-prozine, if that's what they called them back then. I'm pretty sure that's not what they called them back then. Um, that Lovecraft's um, other serial, famous serial, uh, Herbert West Reanimator was published in. Uh, this one came second, I think. And um, a lot of, I noticed a lot of copyright dates saying that it's 1928. I don't think there is a massive difference in the text between them. Uh, but I think the homebrew no notice of copyright would have been far down on people's lists and like it's just such an obscure periodical mm -hmm. right that nobody knew that it was published anywhere else after the weird tales until the modern era um the one good thing about looking at the homebrew i did think i sent everybody the pdf for the first serial of that i mm -hmm. took it from photographs i found uh, i think on a, a an auction um was that the whole serial was illustrated by Clark Ashton Smith. And uh, he's a very weird outsider artist, as well as being a great writer and poet. Um, did you guys notice all the penises? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, that was kind of hard to miss. Um, the new annotated H.P. Um, uh, Lovecraft uh, by Leslie S. Klinger, it's called uh, the subtitles Beyond Arkham, has all of them rather than just the ones in the first serial. And um, the difference is, is they're showing it's colored. And I think that that might be an error. I think that might be a later um, sort of reprint that had them colored. But it shows the mantelpiece uh, or the chimney, and it shows the valley and the, the peak and, and not, not a lot of human shapes. But... Um, one of the reasons I was a little bit slow getting on our game today is mm -hmm. because I needed my shower time. <laughs> Shower's not just for cleaning your body. It's also for thinking, I think. I think very well in the shower. And uh, it really crystallized uh, some stuff that I'm pretty sure is in there but is explicitly not mentioned. Um, and I'm going to ask Mr. Jim Moon if he has a similar theory to the theory that he proposed for uh, the last homebrew serial, in that uh, does the narrator or is Lovecraft hiding something from us that he will go on to use later in another story? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, possibly. Are you th going towards Pickman's model? Well, uh, I no, I, I didn't actually. Rats think in the wall. This is a it, 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 there's a number. It's definitely rats in the walls. I, I did think of that, but I can see Pickman's model for sure. I mean, 
these are ghouls in a, in a large sense, right? Um, but I was thinking, like, one of the things that's very distinctive, uh, we know at the end that somebody's a Martens is because they have heterochromia, right? Two different color eyes. One of my mom's dogs had, had that. Um, it's actually fairly common in dogs. It's fairly common in cats. And it's relatively rare in humans, but it's probably always a cause caused by the same, just generally considered to be caused by the same thing when it's not a genetic damage or like physical damage. Um, and that is, uh, it's inbreeding. So one of the things we never learn about the narrator is his name. And I'm pretty sure he's related to the Martenses. It's just not explicitly stated. Yes, because that's why he was um, left when the, uh, they took um, uh, George and his first two companions. Yeah, it makes much more sense that way. I mean, he, he has three mm. encounters with them, right? And, uh-huh. and I was thinking it was a lot more like Shadow over Innsmouth. I mean, it even ends the same way. He's, he's going to dynamite the place, right? And then we find out in Shadow over Innsmouth very explicitly that the main character is is one of them, right? He's got the fish eyes and, uh, I don't know, the gilly look. Yeah, the Innsmouth look. The Innsmouth look. Yeah, that's what I did in my article. Have you read that article yet, Jesse? I looked at it, but I wanted to save it because once I realized it was by you, I didn't want to I don't want to spoil your thunder or be thinking. I wanted to come up with shit on my own. You know what I mean? That's why I always say save for the podcast. So, that's that's the the come away I came away from this is that it, in fact, if you think about how weird it is, uh, like there, it, there's this is not I don't think anywhere close to my favorite Lovecraft story, but there's some passages in it that are just stunningly beautiful. Like for you know his standard, uh, I don't know gothy tone. It's like this is one of them. I was tweeting this morning. Hard to fit it into 240 characters. In the throes of nightmare, this is right near the end of the story. In the throes of nightmare, when unseen powers whirl one or over the roofs of strange dead cities towards the grinning chasms of Nis, it is a relief and even a delight to shriek wildly and throw oneself voluntarily along with the hideous vortex of dream doom into whatever bottomless gulfs may yawn. That's just a very strange sentence for a regular person to say. <laughs> that's that's from one of his dreams, isn't it? That's, he used to dream that, that goals would, would take him and he would fly over um, cities. and. Um, He's definitely a dreamer, for sure. Yeah, he has a few dreams here. Yeah. But, 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 uh, but that's one of his most famous ones. But even Sorry. beyond the dreams, he's just full of this. I mean, shrieking, slithering, torrential shadows of res- red viscous madness chasing one another through endless and sanguine corridors of purple fervor in the sky, yeah. almost phantasms and kaleidoscope mutations of a ghoulish remembered scene, forests of monstrous over nourished oaks with serpent roots twisting and sucking unnameable juices from an earth verminous with millions of cannibal devils. I mean... I mean, this is a very love. I mean, Lovecraft just decided, okay, I'm going to throw every word I want to in here, and, and it all kind of works. I mean, you were saying earlier, Jesse, about ghouls. I was thinking more chuds for this story than ghouls. <laughs> well, what's the difference between a chud and a ghoul, really, other than chud is, you know, sort of the modern 
term for it. It, it might be like you know, mm. whales or fish at some point, and then people I, 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 make the I, distinction. Because I think of ch- I think of chuds more as more explicitly descended from humans than ghouls are. Usually, I think ghouls is more of a separate species. As chuds are just the degradation and the and the and the uh, degradation of of humans into into something that's. Uh, cannibalistic and uh, underground living whereas ghouls are kind of like uh, not quite human. I, I think I think I, they're they're definitely I mean even in Chud, right? They they're they're humans that have been modded. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Chuds have like mutation things. Uh, yeah. Mm. Well, I on the beast in the cave thing. That's that's ghouls too. I think that's all they're kind of the it's the same story in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You, it's telling the same story, racial degeneration. Mr. Jim Moon mentioned uh, the Beast in the Cave. I, I think that's explicitly referenced in the notes in the Lurking Fear and the Leslie Klinger annotated. But I and I absolutely see that. I mean, it's got a lot of crawling around in tunnels, right? Um, it's got it's got a lot of that uh, ancient stuff, but. I think that that's uh, that uh, the, the main reason you want to have that connection is because there's a recognition of of oneself in the thing that he saw. I think that's the connection, right? But there the the connections go to many 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 other stories including rats in the walls and um and uh I mean, Dream Quest of Unknown. Yeah, Ian's mouth for sure. Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, even though, like, just in that it, there is that all that dream imagery and and seeing Richard Upton Pickman there. But and yeah. even after a fashion, Charles Dexter Ward. I always think of those. Sure, there's tunnels there. I mean, those. Well, they were kind of experimented on or whatever, but they are sort of the, the remnants of. They're like they're racial remnants. I mean that that's what these are. These are like the backwoods tri-racial isolates, essentially. The, I think that's what's in Lovecraft's head. The most um, uh, outside of Lovecraft, the the story that I thought of the most is the Graveyard Rats by Henry Kuttner. Y'all read that? Mm. Long while yes, ago. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's got. Actually, that is more of a ghoul story. Yeah, the idea that the the feasters who live under the cemetery, this other race, and they can command the rats to essentially go fetch them their dinner. Yeah, there's a there is a uh, body that moves mm, around, animated by the yeah. rats, perhaps. Mm. But uh, that uh, that crawling around, I, I think part of part of the reason I was thinking so much about why he doesn't have why it's never explicitly stated that he has these two two different colored eyes. Right, uh, the heterochromia that everybody else in the family has, is that it's so explicitly stated in all the movies. <laughs> uh, so the the first movie, which is the lowest budget, it has amateur actors. It's called what's a dark, dark legacy, and I think it has a subtitle something like the Final Descendant. Um, it's actually a pretty good movie, other than the fact that it's terrible. Um, it's <laughs> it, it, it's really badly acted. Like, like the, I don't think any of them had ever acted before, and uh, you can see why they never acted again, uh, for the most part, um, because they just don't know how to deliver lines, and it would be like me trying to per- put on a performance. It's just terrible. 
Um, and the budget for everything, like, I think they probably blew the budget on getting a truck to drive out to the house because everybody's wearing their own clothes as far as I can tell. And, <laughs> and you know, the script is, it, it, it's serviceable, but it, it, it's, it's very faithful to the, to the story in many respects. And yet the boss who sends this reporter off to investigate the house turns out to be uh, one of the descendants if I'm remembering it correctly um, the, that's the 1989 movie uh, Dark Legacy the uh, 1994 film which uh, has a script in part by Dan O'Bannon who you know is a great writer of scripts um, it, it's got serious problems but they're all I think mitigated by the fact that it's quite funny <laughs> and deliberately funny, I think, or at least very close to it. Did you guys see the um, hilarious joke that I tweeted about um, this movie? <laughs> There's a scene. No, no, no. Okay, okay. I didn't at you because I didn't want to, you know, be doing at you's all, all week. But there's a scene where uh, this uh, femme fatale is tied up. Uh, the plot on that one is, is extremely different. The town of, uh, what's it called? Fetters Corner. No. What kind of corners? Uh, Leffert's Corners. Le- Leffert's Corners, yes, yeah. is is mm-hmm. inhabited by, it's. there's no house. It's the whole town is sort of like Tremors, right? It's it's uh, a whole town that's uh, under siege. Um, the whole town's under siege, and this uh, Martens comes to town looking for uh, buried treasure that his father left for him. And he has heterochromia, right? Um, and then the, some mobsters chase after him. But when he gets to the town, there's a, a doctor played by Jeffrey Coombs, uh, Dr. Haggis. And there's uh, a femme fatale shows up. Uh, um, and then there's this girl who's defending her sister who's pregnant. And, and she's her, their father was a Vietnam vet, so she's got lots of guns. And she's wearing his dog tags. And so there's a, a, a great fight scene between the femme fatale blonde and the dark-haired Vietnam vet's daughter. That's just hilarious. But at one point, um, the girl's tied up, and she says, the the blonde's tied up, and she says to him, uh, are you going to stand there, or are you going to taste me? (laughs) And it's because he's got the two different color eyes, right? But there's also some sort of sex thing involved going there. But then the very next scene, uh, you know, right abutting it, uh, Dr. Haggis goes in, they're in the church, and he goes into the um, sacramental wine, <laughs> breaks into the cabinet, and takes a swig of it, and, and he makes this wincing face, and then says, Jesus! <laughs> and then, and then he looks at it again, and takes another swig. Well, you know, <laughs> so there's this whole um, cannibalistic uh, joke joking going on that i think is just delicious um and i guess i sort of did intend that particular pun but uh i just i i i really appreciate what's going on what they're doing there even though it is radically different from you know the setup and the narrator although there is the narrator and he is a martens and he does have the heterochromia um he doesn't have this delight in in the macabre that our hero here does he's almost it's almost like he's one of the uh two um crazy guys in in that early lovecraft story the the hound right 
He's got this sort of delicious love of the macabre. Very much so. Um, I find it very interesting in the um, the uh, uh, Dark Adventure radio ad- adaptation. Mm-hmm. They, um, I think, they called out something quite pertinent to the style of um, the narration, mm-hmm. and that you know, in their version, you know, the narrator is this you know writer working for this tacky true crime magazine, mm-hmm. and. Uh, one of the cops says, he's a bit of a weirdo. He <laughs> talks like a goddamn Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, exactly. But actually, at this stage, you know, Lovecraft hadn't quite flushed the Poe out of his typewriter and fully found his own voice. Um, something he was very aware of. And, um, you know, he was aware that a lot of his early tales, he was either sort of in a, a Dunsanian mode or a Poe mode. And, you know, he just writing it to Clark Ashton Smith. You could have my Dunsany piece and my Poe pieces, but where are my Lovecraft pieces? Mm-hmm. Yes, he searched to find his own sort of particular method. But what struck me going back to this when I reread it last night, um, and then listened to the dark, uh, uh, the dark adventure radio theater, that sort of that line sort of made the connection is that this is drawing really heavily from Poe, and in particular, uh, Fall of the House of Usher. Mm. Oh, yes, the end echoes that. Yeah. Well, the house has definitely gonna... fallen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, that is, that's heavy. I mean, Poe doesn't spell it out, but it's, it's laid on with a trowel that the uh, the ushers um, play the game for all the family, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. And they have no other branches. And uh, this is why Roderick and Madeline are absolutely batshit crazy. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of it's very similar. You've got the you know the this deserted, haunted forest, this old crumbling house, uh, this family who has just literally turned inward, yeah, <laughs> and have uh, you know gone completely crazy. And it's kind of there's a huge, huge uh, dollop of uh, House of Usher, I think, in lurking in this story, as it were. Yeah, that title is actually really interesting too, because um, in the adaptations. Um, they never really say it, right? They never say... It, it's only the narrator who, who thinks of it as the lurking fear. They're talking about specters and uh, devils, right? So what Ghosts, is... The, yeah. Yeah, what is this lurking fear? Well, I, I was thinking about, like, why... He escapes from the, from the monsters three times, this lurking fear that he escapes from. He escapes from it three times. First time... He he says, uh, I'm not going to go there uh, by myself. That's too dangerous. I'm going to get these muscular men to come with me. And then all three of these guys are lying on a bed, um, and one of them has his <laughs> arm thrown over him. And so there's a little bit of uh, homo, uh, I don't know. Homoeroticism. Homoeroticism yeah. there. But um, I think that might be a distraction from the fact that the muscles being well-developed, well it's like, I think he... I think he's subconsciously bringing them a sacrifice. Like, more importantly, dinner. Right? I wanted to bring that up. Uh, but I don't think he knows that. I think that that's something that, you know, his subconscious is doing. And I think that's something Lovecraft's doing explicitly, except he's making it so it's not explicit, if you know what I mean. Right. Because, because, I, I think we have to go back on this inbreeding thing, though, sure. before we move on too much. Sure. Uh, because it's it's not entirely inbreeding, and this this is like yeah, stylistically stylistically you can say there's a Dunsey post stuff. I know that quote, but this this is what Lovecraft is. 
he's he writes about race. That's his central obsession mm-hmm. and degeneration. It's it's in his le- I read his letters. I spend hours and hours going through all his letters, and it's 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 all it's like on his mind constantly. Sure. And I think like this is this is I, maybe not stylistically the story doesn't fit, but this is Lovecraft's voice. This is his message to the world. Um, now I'm going to quote the story here because mm-hmm. it's not just reading. Okay, their life was exceedingly secluded. The people declared that they were isolated. Their isolation had made them heavy of speech and comprehension. In appearance, all were marked by the peculiar inherited dissimilarity of eyes, one generally being blue and the other brown. Their social context grew fewer and fewer until at last they took to intermarrying with the numerous menial classes about the estate. Mm-hmm. Many of the crowned family degenerated, moved across the valley, and merged with the mongrel population, which was later to produce the pitiful squatters. The rest had struck suddenly to their ancestral mansion, becoming more and more clannish and taciturn, yet developing a nervous responsiveness. Okay, so yeah, there's certainly a suggestion of inbreeding here, but it's, it's I think, a bigger bigger concern is is like kind of race mongrelism. Yeah, degeneration. Uh, that's always on his mind for yeah. sure. I, it's that, very funny because no, but that's a racial no. degeneration. It's, yeah, it, that's. I don't see how you can read the story and not see this as absolutely like like race. It, that's, that seems to be the central theme of the story. I, I can't I can't get it out of my eyes. But in yeah. the quote, you, you mentioned it's about. not race; it's class that is. Um, oh no! It's it's, it's certainly a, a for for Lovecraft. It's race. Race I mean, and class are pretty in, much in the, the quote, same thing, I mean, though, right? In your in your quote, white, it, it's black. talks about uh, talks about class in your quote. But it's, it when we talk about love and race, it's not just black and white. It's it's not just even black, white, and red. He's got all these different categories. And again, I just I got him right in front of me the letters he wrote to uh, to Robert E. Howard, mm-hmm. two volumes edited by none other than S. T. Josie, who doesn't want to admit this. It seems <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's it, I don't see it in this story. It's yeah, but even in the story, it's, I see class. I don't see race. I, oh, I, 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 they're indistinguishable. Yeah, yeah I think I think that that's right. That that he thinks that what makes you a high class person is that your race is high, right? You're Dutch. Oh yeah, the, like the Teutonic race versus the yeah, yeah, yeah. the Saxon race. And, and, all and that's why that's why whenever he talks about a Spaniard, he has to say, well, he wasn't of the low type, right? He says, no, he's of the high type of Spaniard. Because he sees them as not a single race, but like there's a degeneration when the Moors come in or something like that. So uh, they're interbound. They're interbound. And uh, I I, I think that it is about race and race degeneration, right? Um, And mongrelization, absolutely. And that's why uh, the white ape or um, what's the regular title? Gorilla. White gorilla, yeah. Uh, Well, it's these gorilla. No, but there's a story called the White Ape. It's called the narrative yeah. of Arthur Gordon Pym. Of, no, that's not it. It's the German Arthur Night. German. That's right, Arthur yeah. German and, and his family. Right? How's it go? What's the title? <laughs> I have it here. Facts concerning the late Arthur Facts German and his family. Right. And and in that story, his grandma married. A, oh no, his grandpa married a uh, white ape. Right. And then that's why he's got that apish look in him. <laughs> um, it, it made him actually stronger, right? Uh, physically stronger, but it also made him um, more intelligent. But it also made him look like a uh, monkey, 
which is a, a problem for him. <laughs> he finds it out. He's like, oh, my family resemblance is terrible, right? So there's a kind of, um, uh, I mean, that's the, that's the cool part about the Innsmouth story, right, is, yeah, he is, he hates his family and, and, and how it came to be that way, but he also um, kind of likes it. Right, so it's not you know. Uh, I, I the worst thing possible for me to is is to mix with a black person. I'm sure Lovecraft would have thought that that was terrible, right? Marrying a black person. Um, on the other hand, um, it doesn't have to be a black person. It can be pretty much anybody who allows your race to degenerate. And if you have this idea in your head, right, and you don't know what causes racial degeneration, but you think it actually exists. Then you're going to be concerned, sort of paranoid about it, and I think that that's—I mean—that's why it is all about that degeneration. Like, how did they get like this, right? This family. Ah, well, see, they—they they were upset with the English, and so they moved away and built their house in the in the hills, and and now they're doing all sorts of terrible stuff, right? And what is that terrible mm-hmm. stuff? Well, they they deign to breed with the family help, right? The servants. Oh my God, terrible. <laughs> I, I mean, this is this is why uh, it's sort of it was a shock for um, for uh, even even today for the Queen of England's kids to be marrying uh, American celebrities and all that stuff. It, I mean, they're sort of past most of it, but you're supposed to keep that inbreeding going, right? And and w- I, I I wish um, you guys had uh, had a chance to preview the the final adaptation the 1997 leaders um, because it's very interesting the way they did that it's almost like the main character is a hemophiliac uh, at least right um, and he's got the heterochromia of the eyes uh, he's got a wife he turns out he's from uh, he's been raised in Paris on a trust fund his wife um, is his nurse and they go back to his ancestral home where you know they're having all sorts of problems because all the food is being taken away, uh, the graveyards being emptied and being moved to another place, off the island. So you know they're having explicit trouble. It's it's basically Lefferts Island, right, rather than Lefferts Corner. Um, but the, at the end of the story, he turns away from his wife, um, who's pregnant with his child, and says, "No, I'm with these people now." with my family and they're all like degenerate elves underground or whatever. Um, and he starts eating on like at one point in the, it's a really gross movie. At one point it's for sustenance. He eats like a, a pickled baby. <laughs> that was like an aborted fetus. It's, it's pretty horrible. And then he goes on to have a sex scene with his wife, which is even funnier. I mean, it's not a, it's not a good movie, but <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, and then just the fact that he chooses to stay with this, this family, right. And that everybody's thought he was beautiful. Right. And he is beautiful. He's beautiful compared to everybody else in the family. Right. But on the island, which is filled with women because everybody's a fisherman, right? Everybody says he's gorgeous. And he looks like a vampire. He carries an umbrella around to keep the sun from him, right? Um, but that inbreeding that caused the hemophilia and the need to cannibalize is... Um, oh, and oh, the extra step in that movie is everybody is also um, hermaphroditic. So... They can have sex with themselves. And then the final scene, we're told, oh, and he had a twin sister. 
um, who, although she could have sex with herself and fertilize herself, she liked having sex with him too. And it's like, wow, that <laughs> they really made explicit what wow. Lovecraft is just hinting at, right? Like they said everything that Lovecraft's saying in these sort of fancy poetic uh, Poe style poems in in middle middle of a paragraph. We're going to just show that. <laughs> and it really makes a difference. <laughs> yeah, it's a choice. Uh, it is a real choice. And uh, it's interesting. I think the um, the adaptation by HPLHS, the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's Historical Society, I, I thought it was going to be radically different because they started with these police guys, right? And I'm like, oh, they're doing it this way. That's quite erratic. But it turns out that they were just changing the order of how the story is being told, right? So we do get our main character, unnamed narrator. Um, but what we don't get is is his telling of the story. We get a, a distancing effect. And I think it helps to show us how insane the narrator clearly is. He's not a normal person. <laughs> right, you're right, right. I thought that adaptation was really... I mean, because if you read the story, like he's horrified and you have to read between the lines to figure out, okay, he's actually related to this. Whereas the, the adaptation really just shows just, just how around the bend he's, he's become. But one thing I wanted to, I was thinking about when I, cause I was listening to the adaptation again and, and think about the story is, so at the be so we were talking about the two guys that get grabbed and he's left in the middle if he, if he is related to them, they obviously left him alone because he's part of them. So yeah, he, I think they he's, were, he's a survivor because because they recognize him as one of their own. That's right. In the in the second movie, uh, he has the eyes. Right. Um, in the third movie, there's a uh, a birthmark that's on every every Martin's shoulder. Right. Um, in the first one, it's just I think he knows that it's his family, and I think there's another Lovecraft story where there's that effect too. There's an outsider outside of Innsmouth who, maybe it's an Innsmouth story, who is who is aware that his family is is fishy, right? Um, in well, more, the, there's that festival story. Which the festival, that's the one I'm thinking of. That yeah. has a kind of connection. That's actually closer to Innsmouth because that's have very interesting. Yeah. There. Yeah, exactly. that, that's a good story because it's kind of the it it has an actual cultist, mm-hmm. which I, of course. So, you know, a lot of people think, of but love they're welcoming, the right? <laughs> but that's probably one of the best stories that actually has a cult that actually does rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's the same. It's like it's part of his family, right? So he has mm-hmm. to come back and do this ritual. I think it's in Kingsport, right? That's There's not exactly, many stories yep. in Kingsport. Absolutely, only a couple. But that's. Yeah, but it's the same thing. It's like the draw of the family and this tr- deep tradition, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. why he's so interested in these kind of underground traditions that go way, way back. He he really bought into this like witchcraft stuff. Um, I forget the do I, do I have a note on it somewhere? I probably do because I've been writing down a lot of notes on this stuff. But he, he, this book came out at sometime in the thirty or the twenties or thirties about the witch. <laughs> The one, yeah, that one, and yes, yeah. and he, he really, and I think the thesis of that book essentially is that these were real kind of subcultures, which I think is a fascinating. Normally, historians that look at the witch hunts today, they tend to say that this was like uh, about the Reformation or the growth of the state, or you know, just or violence against women, all these things, and those are. I buy that, but I'm still attracted to this idea that there really were subcultures there, kind of alternative ways of living all throughout Europe, 
maybe going back to the Druids, right? When the Romans tried to suppress the Druids, they accepted all these other religions, but not the Druids, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this kind of now, now we can bring it back to class in a way. This like this need to suppress working class traditions. It's so strong in so many of his works. I think with race, this need to smash, obliterate from memory, like working class alternatives. I, this comes up so much in his stories. It, this one, in a way, it's not as strong because you don't have the state violence. But I mean, the whole violence of isolation, if you think of a town like Dunwich, which is neglected yeah, by... Yeah, that's certainly another... Innsmouth has that. But if you look at these stories, Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu, like, what do you do with the cult of worshipping the statues? You, the only thing you can do is like murder, genocide them. And it's praised almost by Lovecraft in that, that flashback story, right? Mm-hmm. The police officer from New Orleans tells the story about, you know, he met these cultists in the woods. The only thing to do was like basically murder them all. And they were killing great. people, I remember, in, right, in fairness. <laughs> in Smoth, the only thing to do is just bomb it, destroy it entirely. The horror of Red Hook, the same thing. Like not only you got to shut off the immigrants, you need the wall, you need to build the wall. But yeah, destroy those communities altogether. Mm-hmm. Mountains of Madness, even the Shagas, almost become a form of this. They're like the working class sure. in that ancient society that, if left unsuppressed, are just going to be monstrous, you know, murderous beasts. Um, and even in a way, in Charles Dexter Ward, this like you have to the whole theme of that story, that novel, is forget the past, eradicate it. That's the heroic thing that the main character in Charles Dexter Ward does is eradicate the memory of the past. Hmm. And, of course, uh, what Kerwin's crimes in Charles Dexter Ward is experimenting on the most easily exploited working class, the slaves. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it comes up so much. And, and, you know, what I think is really striking about this is you have Lovecraft's aware of these interesting threads of history these underground narratives, underground traditions that seem to challenge civilization, for lack of a better word, right? Mm-hmm. And, and his solution is destroy it. It's, it's you know, as violently as possible. And, and for if you read his, his letters with Howard, Howard is constantly kind of on the side of the barbarians. He's on the side of the frontier. He's, on the, he's also a racist, of course, but he's, he's kind of on the side of diversity more and mobility and, and these... He's more sympathetic with like black folklore and these things, but Lovecraft's like, no, no, we can't have that. We need to build the walls. <laughs> Speaking of <laughs> building walls, uh, uh, this story has artificial. Se- well, maybe they're not artificial. He wrote it for serial, but it has a title beyond the lurking fear. Each chapter has a title, right? And I was thinking about how each of those needs to be sort of explicated. It's just like the lurking fear, whatever it is. Is I think the, the answer to that is it's the fear within the narrator, right? <laughs> it's the thing that, like, oh, geez, I can't think about that. <laughs> I'm just gonna black and not think about that. I'm gonna focus on the external, right? Um, but the first chapter title is the shadow on the chimney, and uh, what's interesting is this: it's not actually in the illustrations by Clark Ashton Smith, but it's explicitly in the story. Um, and in, I think, the, one of the comic adaptations. There, there are two comic adaptations. Um, Terrence, I know you wanted uh, everything on that respect, but uh, <laughs> one of them is, is pretty much unavailable. There's a few illustrations from it, but it looks quite distant. Yes. It was, uh, I think, from the 70s. 
Um, and I, I didn't want to pony up the money to try and hope that it was worth getting. But uh, the shadow on the chimney is shown uh, with the fireplace in the comic book. And that reminded me of what it says in the story. In the story, the fireworks, uh, fireworks, the fi- fireplace is decorated with um, scenes from a biblical story, and that's the prodigal son, right? So the prodigal son is the story of a, a, uh, a profligate kid who takes his share of the estate, spends all his money, and then uh, comes back home and, uh, and is rejected by the brother. But the father says, no, 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 we got to love our son or something like that, right? I'm, you can tell my Sunday school not... <laughs> I, I can tell your, your you Bible's go. a little weak. It, well, it, it's interesting because it, it's unclear uh, what the meaning of it is, right? And a lot of people argue about it, which is kind of maybe the point of that story. But in this story, we actually have that story recapitulated, right? There's the, the I think it's Jan Martens goes off to war. And he comes back, um, and his family uh, doesn't like him since he went off and learned of the world, right? And fought in the uh, French and Indian War, right? And then uh, a friend of his writes to him and says, Hey, how you doing? And I think you should leave that place. And then he never hears from his friend, so he goes and visits the family. And they make up some excuse about how he died. And then he comes back and digs up his his friend's grave and finds his skull was smashed in, right? Um, I think that that's obviously a shout out back to that story on the mantle, right? The story on the fireplace. But is it being... And to himself. It's also himself because he's the prodigal son coming back to the family estate. Indeed, and to the narrator coming back, right? Um, Right. And and what is his what is his uh, alternative? It's an it's a different ending, right? Instead of uh, coming home and uh, making amends with the father and becoming one of them, like it happens in the final movie or the nineteen ninety seven uh, movie Bleeders, aka Hemoglobin, aka <laughs> what is it, uh, the Descendant, which uh, I think there's another. Isn't there a Lovecraft story by that name? Maybe I'm maybe I'm making that up. It feels uh, like I think a that's a, a Durleth ah, um, collaboration. I think you're right. right? <laughs> Inverted commas. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, the fact that he, he comes home and doesn't uh, admit that he's uh, part of the family like happens in the, the final movie, but rather he comes home, um, you know, wasting, having wasted his legacy, he destroys the family. Right in the same sense that um, Shadow of Innsmouth is a betrayal. Right, they he's welcome to the town, and they they want to welcome him and have a party at that night while he's locked himself in his room and he runs away. And they were just like, "Come on, let's go to the beach. <laughs> we're gonna have some fun down there, dude. It's gonna be great." And then what does he do? He betrays them. Has the FBI come and uh, blow up the town and put everybody in concentration camps. Right, the, the, it's a kind of uh, interesting though. They forgive him though. The Innsmouth folk in the Innsmouth. Well, yeah, in know, Innsmouth, it is proper forever, full so. prodigal son. They forgive him. They say there'll be a penance, but it'll be a small one. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, they live forever, fine. so it's not a big deal, right? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, but with exactly. these these folk, they're they're 
they're uh you know they're just having they wanted to have a feast you brought some food for the family that's very nice of you come come again <laughs> that's why those muscular guys have to be muscular is my thinking good eating <laughs> yeah exactly so the shadow on the chimney i think is a very uh interesting thing um a passer in the storm. I'm a little uh, less clear on this one. Anybody help me with that? That's a chapter two. While you think about that, I will read the summary. Traumatized by his disappearance of his two friends and the disturbing shadow he viewed in the fireplace, the narrator continues his investigation. He befriends another reporter named Arthur Monroe and tells him of the things he has experienced so far. Monroe agrees to help him, and the two scour across the countryside for any clues to the murderous creature or possible remnants of the Martenses. Uh, there is no trace of the mysterious family, but they managed to uncover an ancestral di- diary which once belonged to them all. Uh, belonged to them. All the while, the narrator has a constant feeling of being watched. However, he and Arthur are trapped by yet another thunderstorm and seek shelter in an abandoned cabin where the narrator thinks back to the horrible events of the mansion. As an unusually large thunderbolt clashes across the sky, Monroe walks over to the window to survey the damage, and the storm soon clears up. Monroe doesn't move from the window, and when the narrator tries to rouse him, he finds his face has been gnawed away by some unseen horror. Um, there is a cover of a collection of Lovecraft stories that has that as the cover. I think I put that in the audiobook. Um, it's just got a face chewed off. Um, so what happened there and why is it, uh, is the pastor in the storm a joke? Like he died in the storm or, or is it like the, the monster he passed that away he, when, a, when a pastor ate his face? Yes. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't I don't quite get that title as much. Okay. No. Now here this one chapter three, I really 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 want to know the answer to this one. So I hope somebody can help me. The what the red glare meant. What did the red glare mean? Well, glare is ambiguous, isn't it? Oh yes, you're right. It's the the shining red and the the look of. Of redness. And redness would be anger? Um, it's hellish, isn't it? Demonic. Sure. I mean, at the end of the chapter, uh, he briefly encounters a goblin-like creature lurking in the shadows, which he views through the light of his gas lamp. But I wouldn't think that that would be a red lamp. A sudden lightning strike hits the tunnel, allowing the narrator to quickly escape when he sees a distant red glare. Only days later does he find out what the glare is, a burning cabin with one of the creatures inside. So, what does it mean? I wondered if he was riffing on um, one of the lines from the, the American National Anthem. <laughs> the rocket's red the glare. Rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air. I mean, we, well, that's we get true. a burning cabin and a dead, yeah. But the, how's, the, how's the lyric goes? It goes, bombs bursting in air. Oh. And then the it's rockets like, red glare, the bombs bursting. I gave proof through the knife that, that our flag uh, was still there. Our flag was still there, right still there. And the song is um, about uh, a siege of a particular um, Fort McHenry in right, Maryland, yeah, a, f- a particular fort. So, is the is the Martens Mansion under siege? <laughs> uh, well, it certainly will be <laughs> in the, the next the, the, chapter. The, 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 
the, the, the, the narrator is under siege. I mean, I mean the, as, as these events keep piling on him, his, his mental condition's under siege. But Jan Martin didn't fight for, um, you know, in the, in the back, back story, he, he wasn't fighting in the revolution, was he? No, he's fighting French and Indian Wars. Yeah, so it's pre-revolution. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this uh, theory holds... I mean, it would no, be no, no. I, but, 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 I think uh, Terence is right. He uh, he just liked the line from the <laughs> from the poem and decided, I'll, right, clear. I could use that. It, it doesn't really have any any connection to the events. Mm. I mean, I mean, there were no British troops in this area during the War of eighteen twelve. So, okay. So the last uh, chapter, uh, chapter four, is called "The Horror in the Eyes." Oh, um, this is easy. Okay, I think it's, yeah, it's double meaning, though, right? Yes. Right. Oh, quite possibly, yeah, yeah. Let's make, let's make it explicit, Paul. You tell us what it means. I, I mean, the horror in the eyes. That I mean, the, 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 the subtext that the, the story has been not saying, but we figure out, like, he's got the Martin's eyes. He's part of this family. What they've done and where he's come from, he's tied to this, whether he likes it or not. And looking to the eyes of that whitest gorilla, he sees... He sees his family. He sees himself. Mm. They were the dissimilar Morten's eyes of the old legend, and I knew in one in a day in chasm of voiceless horror where to become in that banished family, the terrible and thunder crazed house of Morten's. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it's just like yeah, in, in, in seeing the eyes of the of the creature, he's seeing himself. He's seeing the degradation of what his family's become, what lurks within his blood, going yeah. back to holy inspout things. So right, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's got to be it. Hmm. Well, uh, we solved this story. <laughs> Very simple. Effectively. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think that's exactly right. I uh, and he wants to forget it because he says, "If heaven is merciful, will someday indeed. efface my consciousness the sight that I saw." He wa- he wants to deny this connection. He wants to forget. He wants the oblivion, which kind of goes back to Dagon and the whole mm. trying to forget what he saw. Mm. He he, oh. he wants to blot it from his brain but he can't and nice nice that you point to dagon because dagon the main character has the same trouble right which is he can't sleep and in dagon he he's run uh, the reason he maybe kills himself or he sees he's, himself he's in the window out of drugs. is yeah. he's run out of money for opium basically right and that's explicitly mentioned in here. And he says, I'm, I use opium to help me sleep. Here it is. When it, I, when, it, when it thunders, he's afraid of subway stations. Yeah. Why cannot the doctors give me something to make me sleep or truly calm my brain when it thunders? Now, um, I'm thinking about the thundering and why it's actually happening. There, there's a line in, in the annotated uh, Lovecraft book about how the house has these radiating lines coming from it. And uh, uh, Klinger says that this lines up with ley lines and that whole theory that sounds like bullshit oh, match, to me. Yeah, match those lines. Yeah. Um, I don't know necessarily. I mean, he actually, that's what the word tentacle is used uh, to describe them, right? I think that they're tunnels, right? Rather than ley lines. I think they're just... Well, well that's this all- was written way before ley lines were even thought of. Oh, is I that right? Oh, okay, that I didn't know. Oh, yes, I, yeah. I don't know how yeah. old they are. Yeah, yeah. The, the ley lines was around the thirties. A chap called Alfred Watkins wrote mm-hmm. a book called The Old Straight Track. Uh, he coined the term ley line, but mm-hmm. in his conception, the idea was that the um, our ancestors built monuments and standing stones, 
And the idea was they were visible to each other and they were markers in a landscape so you could find your way around. Mm. It was only later, actually, into the 60s and 70s, people came up with this kind of magic earth forces ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's well. <laughs> okay, can't, I, there cannot be a ley line connection. Sadly. I thought it was older than. Well, than yeah, but oh no, no, it's very surprisingly recent. Um, um, I, yeah. I, I would only point out that um, sometimes the connection is backwards. Like for example, um, I always think about that story called uh, "The Red One" by Jack London. Um, it came out, I, th- I want to say, nineteen eighteen, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, in any case. Uh, the very first incident of talking about, as far as I can tell, ancient astronauts comes out the very next year in like a some speculative article, and and then it gets more and more progressively interesting, right? Like people get more interested in. It. But that's an ancient astronaut story, that short story, um, the red one. There's there's this basically it's a spaceship that's landed in the middle of a uh, an island in the South Pacific, and the natives worship it. Um, <laughs> so it's like sometimes ley line, you know, it could be that ley lines came from this story. I, I think that that might be a stretch, though, considering uh, the radiating lines coming out of of this are tentacles, he calls them. And uh, but I'm still like, what is what is all the lightning mean? Because if if we read this as a genetic story um, with, you know, a little bit of biblical stuff, is this God? <laughs> acting on the on the world like I'm, I'm thinking of the story we did evan um the what's mm-hmm. the gothic uh novel that we read i can't remember the title uh the first novel well brockton brown what's his name yeah uh charles brockton, charles brown? brockton brown. Oh, 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 are you t- are you talking about wheeland or the transformation wheeland, right yeah. yeah so there's a temple there and a, a a sin in the family right there's a kind of degeneration going on um, Weird cold, yeah, and uh, spontaneous combustion, uh, and uh, all, you know, thunder, <laughs> lightning, and thunder, um, and that's sort of the the only act of explicit uh, supernatural phenomena in this story is the thunder and lightning from God. Um, similarly, in Frankenstein, right, that's the only supernatural stuff going on is is the the family tree getting lit up. And broken. Mm-hmm. Um, in the illustrations, um, Clark Ashton Smith makes explicitly clear what uh, Lovecraft is saying about the trees. Right, that they're—it's a line he uses in other stories. They—they're who knows what uh, who's who knows what juices they suck. Right, um, and yes. the idea is they're—they're they're, um, they're over. Oh, there was a funny uh, overnourished, overnourished. Yes, yeah, so strangely times, nourished. Yeah. Right. Um, there was a great uh, picture of a cat in a field on a stool, and the, uh, the f- field's doing great. This is on Twitter yesterday. Field's doing great because there's like flowers everywhere. Everything's green and purple, and the cat is also super well fed. And uh, Undine, <laughs> the horrible sanity person on Twitter, <laughs> uh, tweeted too much fertilizer, <laughs> and that's exactly right. Um, the uh, the family is too fertile. Um, the trees are growing strange. I mean, this is, I guess, in uh, Lovecraft's uh, Comet story too, right? Uh, the sh- uh, color outer space, right? Everything's over over nourished and badly. You know, it's 
it's eating the wrong things, right? It's enjoying the wrong things. So he not only does he have the tunnels and the house blown up, he also has the trees blown up at the end, right? He's going to blow up the trees, which to me is is like they're a symbol of something. And if you look at the illustrations by Clark Ashton Smith, the, the trees have, like at some point, they have testicles hanging from them. And uh, their roots are intertwined with each other sometimes, as if they are tentacles. So there's some sort of, um, the land is responding to the, I don't know, the twisted nature of of the family. They do say, though, the um, the spot where the Martinson chose to build their family was always plagued with storms before they were right, there. Right, right, right. And I, I think the taint is in the land itself. Again, it's one of these, there's lots in this story that I see kind of later on he'd take and develop further. Mm. And here it's kind of almost a bit of a hodgepodge. And it's kind of... See, really, I did wonder, because he, he describes this this shadow you can't describe him what it looks like and then later you find ah it's just a monkey man <laughs> did, did Lovecraft change his mind did he have something as yeah. he wrote it did he change the story um, or is there something else that well this is it, the the yeah, yeah. Well, is who is that shadow the right? land, think anything but... outside of like urban New England is kind of weird and Weird stuff goes on there, anyways. But uh, who is the shadow? Part of his imagination of anything that's not Providence or or Boston, maybe or London. When he sees the shadow on the mantle, there, it's weird. on the chimney, the it, light is coming from the outside, right? It's coming from the thunder and lightning outside. Uh, so maybe it's he's seeing he's seeing himself in the in the shadow in the same way that the guy sees himself in the mirror in in Dagon or in the glass. Oh, the outsider. Yeah. Oh, and the outsider yeah. too. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh yeah. And I guess even in um, uh, Arthur German, he sees himself in his grandma, in his grandma's <laughs> corpse. Right. It's a mirror. Um, mm-hmm. The word thunder or thunder comes up uh, twenty-eight times. Right. Thunderstorm. Thunder. Thundering. That sort of thing. Um, it is definitely a symbol for something. I mean, obviously, Tempest Mountain. Um, is going to give you the idea that it's, but it's almost like it's it's trying to attack the ground. He talks about the fulgurites, the, uh, um, the uh, they're not fossils, but they're, they're records of lightning strikes. Right? It's a kind of um, mineral. And why is the ground being pounded all the time? Is that what, why did these people start going underground? Like. Like the the squatters who are, I think, maybe at what Evan is pointing to a lot in what he's saying, as opposed to, and and it's pointed to a lot, quite a bit in the audio drama. Did you hear that, Evan? No, I only did the story. Okay, so the audio drama gives it more from the police's point of view, and we learned a lot of the backstory through the squatters. Some of them, uh, yeah, one of them's, they have a family name, which is Money. <laughs> and the and the cop says, uh, "How do you spell that?" And he says, "It's spelled money." <laughs> and I'm thinking, "Oh, it's M U N N Y." No, it's probably spelled the other way because at one time the reason they got their name is is they dealt with outsiders and they they used money and that's how the name stuck. Right? Um, that idea of uh, dealing with 
these people are degenerating. They are backwoods folk, right? We can't understand. Well, this them. is what eugenicists at the time indeed. were obsessed with. Indeed. Yeah, I, I read, I read this book because I was, I was doing work on this guy Estabrook. He was a eugenicist, active in the twenties, and he wrote a whole book about a, a family called the, well, basically a community called the Ishi, and, and then he had all fake names for everything. But it's somewhere in like backwoods Virginia, mm-hmm. and they were what was like the obsession at the time among eugenicist was to study family histories was one thing they did family histories to get like the evidence of degeneration so there's a famous family called the jukes who you know they were all like all criminals so eugenicists would trace their family history and would find they were all like they they like some normal guy you know married some immigrant prostitute and that started the the cancer mm. in the in the family this, this was serious science at the time, obviously. And the, the other thing they looked at and were really interested in were the tri-racial isolates. So now we don't know the reality of these communities, but you, basically what happened is like indentured servants and slaves ran away in the colonial period and, in, you know, just ended up with Indians. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. intermarried and they kind of got isolated and, and kind of, yeah, they became a little inbred, I guess. But... You know, and then in the 20th century, these communities got kind of rediscovered and the eugenicists freaked out about this because this was what was going to happen to us if we let the immigrants in. Right. Yeah. So no, that, that's idea, still in the consciousness. This. Yeah, that's yeah, it's still in the consciousness today. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a got to shut that border down. Kind of, that's why I think when you talk about Lovecraft and race, that's why I think Josie's kind of. Uh, insistence that race is incidental to Lovecraft's work is it's a very narrow reading of what race is about. It's not just black mm. and white. It's, it's the whole re- concept of how race was when Lovecraft was writing. It wasn't just black and white. There was this new wave of immigration, right? I mean, there's a wonderful history book called how the Irish became white, which argues that, you know, when those first generation of, Irish people came to America, they weren't seen as white at all. It, they weren't depicted as the same in in literature. They were seen as culturally different, almost a different race. Yeah, I mean, that also yeah. happened with Italians and Italians and Greek immigrants particularly. Yeah, yeah they, they, they were clearly seen as degenerate Southern Europeans, not good Teuton, Northern European stock, all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. I want to read a yeah. passage. Uh, this is from chapter three. Um, just because it's it, it's interesting to look at all this stuff in the context of actual text, um, because I, I found myself reading this over and over again this week, and uh, uh, I'm watching all the movies. And I'm I'm thinking, and, and the audio drama and the comic book, and I'm thinking like, okay, I'm getting mixed. <laughs> I'm getting all sorts of mixed ideas. But if we look at the actual text, it's pretty interesting. It's it's a lot about psychology, I think. Listen to this. This is from uh, chapter 3. It had been scrambling in this way for some time, so that my battery had burned very low, when the passage suddenly inclined sharply upward, altering my mode of progress. So he's, he's, he's like crawling around under the earth, right? And as I raised my glance, it was with without preparation that I saw glistening in the distance two demoniac reflections of my expiring lamp. Two reflections... And it's, he's repeating that, right? Two reflections glowing with a baneful, unmistakable effulgence 
and provoking maddening nebula, nebulous memories. That's really ex- explicit, right? Uh-huh. I, I stopped automatically, though lacking the b- brain to retreat. The eyes approached, yet of the thing that bore them, I could distinguish only a claw. But what a claw! <laughs> <laughs> it's admir it's admiration. <laughs> then far overhead I heard a faint I want to say it in the voice of Zoidberg, what a claw <laughs> <laughs> Then then far overhead I heard a faint crashing, which I recognized. It was the wild thunder of the mountain, raised to hysteric fury. I must have been crawling upward for some time so that the surface was now quite near. And as the muffled thunder clattered, those eyes still stared with their vacuous viciousness. <laughs> uh, thank God I did not know what it was. <laughs> Else I should have died. But I was saved by the very thunder that had summoned it. For after a hideous wait, there burst from the unseen outside one of those frequent mountainward bolts whose aftermath I had noticed here and there as gashes of disturbed earth and fulgurites of various sizes. And then this is the line that gets me. With cyclopean rage, it tore through the soil above that damnable pit, blinding and deafening me, yet not wholly reducing me to coma. What is going on? The thunder is its acting, right? And he's interpreting... It's really interesting stuff. It, 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 that's why I love reading Lovecraft, is you're getting inside his psychology. Yeah, he's talking about all sorts of weird bullshit. But the thing is, is he's explicitly thinking it, right, on the page here, and turning it into a story. And it isn't all one way. It's like he's externalizing some stuff, and then he's internalizing that. I just love that. And he's like, I would have died then should I, had I... Uh, had I realized, right? Well, in what sense would you have died? The part of you that walks around with regular folks? Or just, you mean literally died, right? Well, well, well also, the, and then what happens next? In the chaos of sliding, shifting earth, I clawed and floundered helplessly till the rain on my head steadied me. I saw I had come to the surface. So it's almost like a rebirth. He's mm. being rebirthed as, as one of his family. He's... He's been initiated in a sense. He's now he, he he's not going to admit it, and he doesn't want to admit it in the horror in the eyes. But yeah, he's not. He's really one of them, and he's had this uh, gone through gone through the earth. Okay, I'm going to go Cambellio. He's gone. He's gone through his night journey through the earth, and now come up again as a new man of what he really is. I want to read and the end of that paragraph. Was, was that. Yeah. yeah, listen to this. This is backing up some of what you're saying. My brain was a, as great as uh, as great a chaos as the earth, and as distant and as the distant red glare burst on the landscape from the south, I hardly realized the horror mm-hmm. I had been through. Mm-hmm. And then two uh-huh. days later, the squatters told me what the red glare meant. Yeah, but that's what it, they thought it meant. Uh, yeah, but it really meant his his transformation, rebirth, initiation, coming back home to what he is really is. And then, yeah. and then, listen to the end of this. This, uh, I mean, I guess it ends on a cliffhanger, right? This is the end of the chapter. Um, I felt more horror than that which uh, the mold burrow and the claw and the eyes had given. 
more horror because of the overwhelming implications. In a hamlet 20 <laughs> miles away, an orgy of fear had followed the bolt which brought me above ground, and a nameless thing had dropped from an overhanging tree into a weak, weak-roofed ca- cabin. It had done a deed, <laughs> but the squatters had fired the cabin in frenzy before it could escape. It had been doing that deed at the very moment the earth caved in on the thing with the claw and the eyes. So at that point, he he was always saying it was it was a a lurking horror, right? And then and then we get the idea that it's many rather than one. Um, and yep. I, I think they make that much more explicit in some of the adaptations, saying that it's <clears throat> it's the ghost of a particular person, right? Uh, and that person is the founder of. I mean, that's made I guess mentioned in the story. All the other descendants aren't really that important. It's the founder of the family and the family name giver, right? And of course, we are never given the narrator's name in this story. So, what, uh, is there any point in the story where he should have acknowledged the fact that his eyes were of different colors? Because I was thinking that the fact that he never addresses it is is Lovecraft hiding it or saving it for another story. Is there a point? I think it's where- a case of there's a. It's you know we're judging this story with the full knowledge of his canon. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe for Lovecraft himself, I think there's a lot in this story where he picked bits out and thought, that was a good idea and I didn't handle it well. It's kind of like, you know, my idea that, you know... Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. When he's writing Reanimator, he has mm-hmm. the idea for Hypnos. Exactly. That's exactly what I was and, thinking uh, is, mm-hmm. is that he, he said, oh, this is too good an idea to, to, to explicitly state, but he went so far with it, I'll just make it a suggestion. Um but that that does is Innsmouth is after this, right? Oh, well, uh, after this, yeah. Sure. So yeah. it's not like he wrote um, it instantly afterwards. But um, he it's it's really amazing that he is. It's like he isn't telling radically different stories over, or, you know, of all sorts of different stuff. He's really pretty much telling the same story over and over again, just focusing and 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 thinking about it in a different way. Because yeah, so many so many stories can connect to it, and the surprises are different. But uh, it, it, I think yeah, you cannot you cannot you can't ha- write Lovecraft stories, or Lovecraft couldn't have written Lovecraft stories without being obsessed with race in a way that Poe is not and Dunsany is not, right? Dunsany's all, got all sorts of humor going on and sort of um, delight going on. That and Poe's, uh, you know, obsessed with women and death. Um, Lovecraft is is not a he's he's genetically obsessed in a certain sense, right? There's the cosmic element that shows up as well, but this is really I, you're right, Evan. It it is fundamental to what he's doing, especially in a story like this. I I, I can think of a few where it's less fundamental, but the degeneration yeah, and disgustingness. I don't really see it in the dream stuff. But I don't see it in the the Dreamland stuff. Yes, less. And maybe if less. I try harder. No, I think maybe if I try harder, I could see it. No, but. there are connections, but I that, that's not what it is essentially about. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Celepheus, right? Which is a story of a of a guy who ends up being the king of of a city in in the Dreamlands. He gets there by killing himself after his house, his family has degenerated such that they don't own their wealth anymore, right? So uh, and the, and the fact that the new the new money has come in and cut down all the trees and is holding um, 
uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald style parties at his house is <laughs> is kind of like um, is the sadness, right? And then they call uh, the body of a tramp is found in the in the waters beneath the cliff of the house, yeah. right? So that I got that in the temple too. We talked about that. Yeah, it, but so. that that the, the I mean the the falling of a great house, right? As Mr. Jim Moon points out. Um, the fall of the House of Usher. The falling of a great house is a tragedy, probably, I think, in Lovecraft's mind, greater than any other kind of tragedy there can possibly be. Whereas, you know, Poe is saying, oh, it's the death of a beautiful woman. <laughs> Lovecraft, no, it's the fall of a great house. Well, Lovecraft well, did, was a moneyed family. Yes. And it was in his early childhood that um, I believe it was an uncle made some terrible decisions and basically lost the family fortune. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, I think that's a very sort of resonant sort of thing. I think Lovecraft's difficulties in his own life was down to the fact that he was he was raised to be a gentleman in a in a family who didn't have the money to be gentlemen anymore. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, that's why I think he was kind of, because another thing, he was very against modernity (laughs) and the, and the, uh, the modern world. And, you know, he wants to go back. He wants, he wants the clock turned back. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly, you know, you, you know, his ideal would have been to an 80 to be, you know, an 18th century English gentleman in a country village somewhere. (laughs) And you but know, even that comes down to race a little bit. I would, I would absolutely. argue. Absolutely. Like again, not to go back to to Howard's letters, but they're fascinating, and I, I just love reading them for the interplay between these two characters, two writers. I mean, but like Howard was constantly interested in primordial, early, ancient migration and motion, just in world history. Mm-hmm. And Lovecraft always came by like, like that can't be it, like. Like Rome was strong because it was like racially pure. Uh, some of their first letters, some of their first letters were about like the origin of of like Celtic languages in New England, and and Howard thought it must have come from like North Africa or something. And Lovecraft said, "Nope, you're completely wrong, young man. Listen to me. You know, I studied this, and it's it, it's other things, right?" He, he, won't dis, he won't say there was no migration. He just downplays the significance. And he tends to see it with the decline of civilizations rather than their strength. And Howard sees strength in this mobility. I think it's, in many ways, it's a real difference between a New Englander and a Texan mm-hmm. in how they look at history. Mm-hmm. Um, both, again, both racist, both having a, a racist lens through things but to, to see the world. But... One is for the for the static and for the, the 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 stable civilization, and the other sees a liquidity in world history, which is just such a better match of how we understand how world history actually unfolded as kind of a a, a liquid mobility of people and ideas and and all that. Yeah, Texas being a very much younger place than New England, so yeah, so yeah. how well, how frontier, is it easy right? to be able to see it? It will see the frontier. I mean, New England was a frontier four hundred years ago, but Lovecraft isn't thinking that way. I want I want to make a connection between the, those two guys as well that I think is a very American connection and very relevant for today's politics, which is um, both of them basically died because of the American healthcare system being so shitty. Um, Lovecraft died because he he couldn't afford to go to a doctor, didn't go to a doctor, um, wasn't interested in, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, it would have helped if he'd been able to afford to go to a doctor, right? 
Um, and Howard died um, because his mom was dying um, uh, because of the shitty American health care system. I mean, it was 1930, so I, I understand it wasn't great. But um, And we have that letter I tweeted about a while ago that has him begging uh, the author, uh, editor of Weird Tales for some back pay that he's owed because he doesn't know what he's going to do if um, he can't get any money. He's spending all his time in the hospital with his mom. And uh, the only reason they're getting such a good deal is because his dad is a doctor. Right? It's like, wow, that's really terrible. Yeah. There are, these guys are uh, talking about very highbrow historical uh, tra- forces and trends. Um, and what's, what connects, connected them ultimately in their deaths very shortly after each other uh, is, you know, shitty healthcare. <laughs> I, I don't know if any, anyone could have saved Lovecraft uh, from colon cancer, um, but uh, he certainly could have got some, some opiates. That he's always, I mean, I guess he got some at the end, but he could have, he could have been better off. Anyways, uh, that's not in their letters. <laughs> I took us off track. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, I, I, I'll jump into one of these letters um, just to show he's the association of racial degeneration and race mixing with certain physical characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, he researched this a lot because he's writing here to Howard Lovecraft, writing to Howard about Virgin Islanders and their racial mongrelism their race mongrelism in, in the Virgin Islands of all places. Hmm. Um, here, it's a long thing. He's talking about this guy, Whitehead. Oh, yeah. So on another Whitehead. occasion, Whitehead met a colored gentleman who was furiously angry because his daughter was determined to marry a pure white Dane whose coat of arms did not have a sufficient number of quarterings. <laughs> this tan-hued patrician was of all noble descent except for one slight fraction of mixed blood. Probably this business started in the 17th century with the usual crude concubinage betwixt plebeian Danes of the clerk or overseer's class and coal-black negresses, or perhaps a Spanish mulatto figure to some extent. At any rate, by the middle of the 18th century, there had arisen a large element of mixed-blood Virgin Islanders, reared carefully enough by their left-handed fathers or grandfathers to be considered eligible for social recognition, and including young women of sufficient attractiveness and accomplishments to be wooed for legitimate wedlock by Danes of the highest ancestry and position. Um, so the, the left-handedness seems an interesting addition here, mm-hmm. kind of a physical totem of, of a certain racial stock. I was but thinking what, that that's the sinister what, what, what end of so the... interesting about this is Lovecraft must have took the time to research race in the Virgin Islands. Or well, you read a book or something. Whitehead, I know well Whitehead was his friend, um, of course. Is it Henry S. Whitehead? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh so that's how we know he's, he a, he's yeah. a fellow Weird Tales author. Like three, pages, three pages or so about this, about I think, I race think in the I he got it through correspondence wow. with Whitehead, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was, uh, they were very, cur- I think he might have even met him at one point. Um. Whitehead, and uh, he wrote a lot about zombie stories. I think, Mister Jimman, am I wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote one of the original zombie stories, yeah, yeah. Um, oh. called Jumby. That's right. Uh, but that is dealing with it. Um, original um, sort of Caribbean folklore, um, and you have a throughout that whole island group. You have a, a similar legend mm. that has different names. It's only in Haiti 
where a zombie actually becomes a resurrected corpse. In all the other places, it's kind of like a malevolent spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but Whitehead wrote, because so, he was a missionary and he lived out there, and he, uh, the story Jumbi is, is a really, it is like, you know, full of actually authentic Caribbean folklore and uh, just a really good creepy tale as well. Uh, apparently, uh, Barlow was going to publish a volume of Whitehead's letters, but it didn't happen. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's very. Why well, don't yeah. see his letters with Lovecraft now? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. There's not. He, he, I mean, that's the thing is he wrote way more than as letters, right? So, I I would mm-hmm. think a lot. I mean, he has access to libraries, right? But but this yeah. is uh, a lot of sort of anecdotal stories that um, he. I mean, this is this is how we operate too, right? My friend in China says this is what's going on, and then I hear a story in the news, and then I tell that to my friend, right? And so uh, that's how I marshal my arguments, right? I read a book, and then I hear a story, and then I put it all together. And and it's funny, uh, I have those books as well, the ones you're talking about, Evan. Um, yeah. From Hippocampus. The letters. Yeah. Uh, two volumes of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. What's it? What's the collection? What? Uh, a means to freedom. A means to freedom. Edited right. I haven't. I haven't cracked so- into them yet, but I'm looking forward to it because because I, I've read a lot about what they were talking about, and it really informed a lot of their writings. Lovecraft uh, really affected Howard and made him write. Essentially, inspired him to write stories that are more Lovecraftian, right? Uh, with the black stone and um, the thing on the roof, and <laughs> and yet they don't feel exactly like Lovecraft stories because they're, they're Lovecraft light, and that he isn't he isn't working these these deep insecurities about his own family <laughs> into them and working them out and thinking well, about this, what it this is means. what's taking me so long in getting my getting back to writing about Lovecraft is these letters are, are kind of black holes. You yeah, try to dig up where huge, this information right? from mm. and it's, it's tough because he doesn't always acknowledge where he gets it from or, sure. you know, actually like my wife actually is the historian of science. And I'm always asking her like, was this a, and she does history of anthropology and stuff. So I'm like, were people in the twenties talking about this? You know, where did this idea may have come, come from? And, and she tries to help me a little bit, but you know, that's, um, yeah, this collection is great. Just, just uh, I think the title is good. It means to freedom mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's really what their debate ends up. Uh, and it has a second meaning too. <laughs> you know, condensing to, and it's it's really about like it's like the barbarous barbarism versus civilization. Which side are you on? And Howard was obviously on one. Yeah, he liked his barbarians. <laughs> There's somewhere in these letters where, where Lovecraft even associates like the weapon, like like the Italians are stabby. Like, <laughs> what? They, that, that's why they use knives when they do hits. Like the Italian mafia is more likely to use a knife hit because they're just like their race is stabby. <laughs> what? I think that's hilarious. I can't even. I find so it, stupid. it. Okay. If I find it, I'll tweet uh. it. <laughs> Those guys. I'm imagining Julius Caesar looking, saying "stabby." <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he uses the word "stabby," but <laughs> that's my. <laughs> that's funny. Well, I, I think we did pretty well on this uh, story. What do you guys think? It was an entertaining story. It was a good. It was a good dissection of. It. I mean, I'd read it a long, long time ago, and 
rereading it and listening to it and listening to the theater, I think I pulled a lot that I didn't get way back when. Yeah, it it strikes me as nowhere near his best stuff, but I also quite like it. Um, And uh, I I really, I think there's so many great lines in it that are uh, just so poetic, you know? Yeah, I mean, mean, I said said earlier, I think it was Jim saying, like, this is very, this is very him working through his Poe period. Yeah. Was that a pun? Poetic? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Poe poetic. Yeah. Or you could say it's a potpourri of his latest Oh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> Potent. Now I'm I'm sitting here all po faced. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. I love the trees. I'm just staring at the trees uh, that Clark Ashton Smith drew. I don't think I got that one. Well, it's in the PDF of um, the homebrew publication. I don't think I have the homebrew one. Oh, that's interesting. What's well, the title? Is the working uh, fear? Is, probably, I've got lots of the, the working fear. I think it's like part one. It's on the website under uh, on the PDF page, um, but I I've got more illustrations in this, um, and they're colored in the uh, in the uh, Leslie S. Klinger book. But I'll just type it in here and tell you the address. It is nine pages, homebrew, January nineteen twenty three, part one only. And when I click on it and send you the link, um, they're very rough because um, because they're taking from ads or, or I think not ads from a photograph for uh, photographs of a auction of this issue, and I've corrected the pages to make them more. You can see the weird warping that's happening um, is because I'm fixing the images so that they look more natural because the the curved images but you can see there's this, these trees i don't know four or five pages in um and we also get uh the shadow on the mantle and uh in in the clinger book they're colored but here this these are from photographs and the photographs are colored so i i think that the coloring must have come later in a uh very limited edition uh reprint Maybe they were in the original and in the original Clark Ashton Smith, but thinking about how Clark Ashton Smith would be would be contributing to the publication is it's really interesting because he's not mentioned in the story. You know, it's not a Clark Ashton Smith story, but he was he was publishing other illustrations for this magazine as well, and um, they had just run some Lovecraft uh, some Poe stuff earlier. Uh, before Lovecraft started publishing, and I think he did the illustrations for those as well. That is Smith. You seeing mm, it? Interesting. Yes, mm. I see it now. Mm. In the uh, Smith documentary, mm-hmm. uh, Emperor of Dreams, Wonderful um, they do, yeah, they do show um, this 
lurking for illustration. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't. I'm pretty sure they had. It was black and white originally. I think yeah. they actually didn't have the magazine. I think they actually had a had the piece of art. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was just black and white. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of weird because the in here it says you know permission from the CS CS Iana Enterprises, which is Clark Ashton Smith's literary estate, right? To put these in, but I think they may be from a color um, volume that came out because uh, they're th- these were reprinted in a. Ooh, did we lose somebody? No, nope, nope. I'm still here. Oh, everything just dis- went blank for a second. Um, everything uh, was reprinted in a limited edition, I think, chapbook or something like that. And that may be where these pictures are taken from. So it's a little inauthentic, I think, um, if if Smith didn't color them. Because they look kind of, the colorings look kind of weird. I'll, I'll send you a photograph of that. But the, we, get a, we get a bit of the trees. And, and the, the penis. The penis is growing out of the... <laughs> uh, right. is that, ground, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking for them. I can't spot them. Uh, hmm. Yeah, you know, it might not be in this particular one, but uh, just type in Clark Ashton Smith lurk, lurking fear. Um, uh, and um, uh, you should be able to see it in a Google image because they, they do exist online as well. But I wanted to present it in the order that it actually is. That's the only one I actually have completely. Is the first chapter. I can take a picture of what I have here as well, I guess. It's presented in a strange order as well. And they sort of... Uh, the uh, Weird Tales illustration is on the last page. There's a really interesting one. A giant bat-winged griffins... Uh, from the February issue, and it looks like a turtle, <laughs> but it is uh, supposed to be a griffin. It uh, it's a wing, right? But it looks like a turtle. I'll send this to the group chat here, and then we've got the what the red glare meant, and it doesn't look anything like. It doesn't look anything like. Um, I'm not saying anything you sent to the. Group. I haven't sent it to the group yet. I'm still. Me neither. Getting this penis picture ready here. <laughs> I saw one. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful penises. Um, okay. Uh, all right, so I'm going to send this to the group chat here. So go to ongoing call, and then one, two, three, send. Oh, here's another beauty. Oh, I had to send it twice. Sorry about that. The eyes and the claw. What does it mean? Because it certainly doesn't... Like, this tunnel does not make me think of what I saw in the story. He's doing his extra stuff. Yeah. You seeing any of it yet? Yeah, I see these. The uh, griffins. Giant bat-winged griffin. What's the red glare mean? What did it mean? 